Auzu billahi minash shaitanir rajeem. Bismillahir rahmanir rahim. In the name of Allah the gracious, the merciful, welcome back to another episode here on the breakfast show at the Voice of Islam. Today we have a fantastic lineup of guests and also segments um which uh, we will be covering shortly uh, after we go through the news. But just to um capture your attention, um these segments include uh the assassination of Shinzo Abe um how the shocking event unraveled um Shinzo Abe is the former uh, uh president of uh Japan um and was assassinated recently so we will be covering that topic um the next segment we will be talking about is deciphering uh the human body 37 trillion cells to transferring uh transforming healthcare and the third segment we will be looking at is the trait of resilience its source uh purpose and necessity but um just before those we will be going through the news and even before that uh why don't we take a uh, glance back in history to see what happened on this day uh Tuesday the 20 uh Tuesday um the 26th of July um in history um so in 1657 at the battle of siffin um which was during the first muslim civil war between um um respected ali ibn abi talib and mawia uh, the first beside the euphrates river in uh, 1519 francisco pizarro receives royal charter for the west coast of south america in 1533 francisco pizarro also orders uh, the death of the last sapa inca emperor uh, at hualpa in 1803 um, the surrey iron railway arguably the world's first public railway opens in south london in 1908 united states attorney general charles joseph bonaparte um, issues an order to immediately staff the office of of the um chief examiner later renamed the federal bureau of investigation so the fbi in uh, 1945 there is a de- uh, declaration of uh potsdam uh, us britain and china demand the unconditional surrender of japan during world war 2 in 1953 fidel castro leads a failed attack on the moncada barracks intended to spark a revolution in cuba So lots and lots happening on um on this day in history on the, on July 26 um and a very diverse uh, uh very diverse uh, field of events happening there. Uh but to look at um the weather quickly before we uh do uh, proceed with the news that has been happening uh in this past week to look at um the weather uh today we will see a dull start with a few spells of light rain these will clear in the afternoon and a few brighter spells may break through but scattered showers will also develop and winds will be easing tonight any lingering showers should eventually clear although it should stay rather cloudy for most throughout the night and there should be light or gentle winds uh in the late night on Wednesday uh, tomorrow 
Tomorrow morning will continue dry and cloudy. During the afternoon, cloud will tend to break up with sunny spells developing towards the end of the day as well. And then the outlook for Thursday to Saturday. Thursday will be rather cloudy with a few spots of light rain around for some, although there will be um, some drier intervals as well. Friday will be mostly dry with sunshine and just a few patches of cloud around. Saturday will continue dry with a mixture of sunny spells and variable cloud building in at times and trending warmer throughout as well. Um, so what we're seeing is uh, uh, the in introduction of rain again compared to last week. Last week uh, we were seeing Monday and Tuesday, we were seeing 40 degrees and you know incredible sunshine and then the temperature has dropped back to 22 de degrees today, um, which is gonna be the high for today. Um, tomorrow, 22 degrees, Thursday, 24 degrees, Friday, 27 degrees, Saturday, 27 degrees. So it should be picking up again, but we are going through a bit of a rainy spell right now, as is very common in uh, Britain. Um, so to proceed with the news, um, many headlines as, as usual and we will start with uh, the newspaper headlines uh, which are titled gloves off as rivals uh, trade blows on tax cuts and this is by the BBC News so the first televised head-to-head -head debate between prime ministerial hopefuls Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss dominates the papers the Times says that despite calls from Tory grandees for an end to blue on blue hostilities the debate saw the contest descend further into acrimony as the two clashed over the economy, their backgrounds and their records on Brexit. The Guardian says that tax cuts and inflation emerged as the key topics of the evening as the duo clashed repeatedly over their plans. The paper highlights Mr Sunak's wording that Ms Truss is offering a short-term sugar rush uh, with her immediate tax cut plans uh, while mistrust criticised the former Chancellor for the levels uh, taxes reached under his time in office. The choice between the candidates uh, boils down to one simple question. Tax cuts now or later, says the Daily Express. Um, and so far, all the headlines have shown a picture of uh, mistrust and also Rishi Sunak. Um, the Metro says the tone of the debate amounted to blue-on-blue -blue warfare between the two Conservatives with its headline, You'll Lose Us, uh, the next election. Summing up Mr Sunak's attack on how he predicts Ms Truss's plans will unravel. In return, Liz Truss likened Mr Sunak's reluctance to cut taxes to the approach taken by Labour's former Chancellor turned Prime Minister Gordon Brown. And this is highlighted in the Daily Telegraph's headline. The Daily Mail leads with a vow by mistrust to stop militant action from trade unions from trying to paralyse the economy. It says she wants to raise the minimum threshold of support for strike action and double the required uh, notice period to four weeks. It adds that Mr Sunak has also indicated he would take a tough line on unions. Um, the gloves are off, says the I. The paper quotes conservative MPs calling Mr. Sunak and Ms. Truss's attacks on each other uh, peril and shameful, and uh, carries a warning from Tory grandees that the party is at risk 
of a return to being known as the Nasty Party. Uh, the Financial Times reports that Russia uh, will cut gas supplies through its largest pipeline to Germany, Nord Stream 1, to a fifth of capacity this week. The paper says the move would leave Europe short of critical gas supplies ahead of winter and combined with rising inflation could tip the German economy into uh, recession. And this uh, needs to be looked at in more detail um, because this headline uh, seems to be very brief brief and um, Russia does every year cut its um, gas supply for maintenance repairs as well. So um, that needs to be checked if that is... um, that is the case or if they are or if that is because of the ukraine uh crisis that is happening um a 16 year old boy uh a 16 year old working undercover with the daily mirror was able to illegally buy knives in 15 of 23 stores she visited according to the paper's front page a picture shows the young shopper posing with a haul of large kitchen knives and you know goes to show um you know why there's such a high um rate of knife crime if the availability is so is uh, so easy to um the daily star has its tongue firmly in cheek as it uh, reports on groundbreaking research shown uh, showing that police patrols can cut violent crimes by 70% the headline read and um uh and also, the Sun says that Manchester United star Cristiano Cristiano Ronaldo is on his way to Manchester to demand to be allowed to leave the club. The paper says it comes after a pre-season tour, which Ronaldo missed, citing family reasons. Um, so many of the front pages focus on Monday night's conservative leadership debate. The Times reports that Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss ignored pleas from Tory party grandees to end the blue-on-blue blue, uh, hostilities, The Guardian says the debate was acrimonious and describes the re- repeated clashes between the two candidates as deeply damaging. Um, the gloves are off. Tory contest turning nasty is the headline on the front of the eye as well. So really what we're seeing here is um, the majority of papers focusing on this, on, um, this debate uh, these two had. Um, which is very strange, being from the same party, um, you would think that they would be uh, united, but also um, in you know trying to pave their own way uh, to becoming the next prime minister. There's um, a lot of uh, stepping on others that needs to be done, um, I assume. So uh, those are the headlines uh, as of as of today. And to go into some of the some of the stories uh, in detail, um, to start with uh, uh, looking uh, at more detail with, as previously said, uh, the Russian gas supply. The Ukraine war, uh, Russia is waging gas war with Nord Stream One cuts, says Zelensky. So the Russian energy firm Gazprom announced it is once again reducing gas flows into Germany to allow work on a turbine on the Nord Stream 1 pipeline. 
but Ukraine's uh, President Vladimir Zelensky said this was simply gas blackmail against Europe. The Nord Stream 1 pipeline, which pumps gas from Russia to Germany, has been running well below capacity for weeks. Earlier this month, Russia's biggest European pipeline was completely shut down for a 10-day maintenance break, sparking fears in Europe that shipments would not resume at all. Shipments did restart five days ago, albeit still at a reduced capacity. But on Monday, Gazprom announced it would be cutting its gas supply further once again. This time, it said it needed to cut gas supply to around half of current levels in order to carry out maintenance work. The German government, however, said there was no technical reason for it to limit the supply. The gas blackmail of Europe, which only gets worse every month, is needed uh, by a terrorist state to make the life of every European worse, said Mr. Zelensky in his nightly address. He said it was deliberately intended to make it difficult for Europe to prepare for winter without any care uh, for the poverty um, people may suffer in the colder months as a result. The EU, which receives 40% of its gas from Russia last year, has also accused Russia of using energy as a weapon. The latest reduction in flows puts pressure on uh, European countries to reduce their dependence on Russian gas even uh, further and will likely make it more difficult for them to replenish their gas supplies ahead of winter. European energy ministers are meeting in Brussels on Tuesday where they hope to sign off on a joint response to the crisis. Last week, the European Commission proposed member states uh, cut gas consumption by 50%, uh, 15% over the next seven months. The target would be voluntary, uh, but under the proposals, the Commission could decide to make it mandatory in an emergency. Although some countries have resisted the plan, the pressure on European capitals, uh, capitals uh, to reach an agreement is high. Ursula von der Leyen, the European Commission president, has previously said the prospect of Russia completely cut, cutting off gas supplies to the EU was a likely scenario. Since Russia invaded Ukraine in February, the price of wholesale gas has already soared with a knock-on impact on consumer energy bills across the, across the globe. The Kremlin blames the price hike on Western sanctions, insisting it is a reliable energy partner and not responsible for the recent disruption to gas supplies. Meanwhile, Ukraine still hopes that a landmark deal brokered by the UN um, last week could mean grain exports resume from its Black Sea ports within days. If the sides guarantee security, the, gr- the agreement will work. If they do not, it will not work, Infrastructure Minister Alexander Kubrakov said. In his nightly, nightly address, President Zelensky also said he was confident that grain exports from Ukraine will start again in this week. Um, his comments came after fears the deal could fall apart after Russia targeted Ukraine's main port of Odessa with missiles on Saturday. As many as 20 million tons of grain are trapped in Ukraine, unable to leave because the Russian Navy controls most of the Black Sea. Um, so it is quite a... Um, a difficult situation um on on the one hand you know the gas supplies are being cut and we know they get cut every year because of maintenance but um this also could be a ploy or a strategy used um to uh, weaken um the so-called enemy um 
but um, this is um, something that will develop and will be um, looked at in more detail um, as the days go by um, but we here at the Voice of Islam do pray that um, this crisis is resolved as quickly as possible um, and pray for those who are trapped um, in this crisis they wish not to be part of um, we'll be taking a short break quickly um, and after that we will proceed with our first segment of the day uh, which is the killing of Shinzo Ape how this occurred um, and you know how did this atrocious act occur and what are the outcomes of this uh, but here's a quick uh, break for you it was for me that God caused the solar and lunar eclipses in heaven during the month of Ramadan and caused numerous other signs to be manifested on earth and thus in accordance with divine practice my truth was conclusively established God in whose hand rests my life is my witness that if you cleanse your hearts and seek other signs from God the omnipotent one is capable of showing a sign according to his own will and power without being subject to any of your importunities and I am sure that if you demand a sign from me with a genuine desire to repent and promise earnestly before God that if an extraordinary sign appears which is beyond human power you will shed all this rancor and enmity and purely for the sake of winning God's pleasure will enter into the pledge of bet with me then God being so kind and merciful will certainly show you some sign however it is not within my power to fix a period of two or three days for showing a sign or to do exactly as you wish it is the prerogative of God to choose the time You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Assalamu alaikum. May the peace and blessings of Allah be upon you. Welcome back to the breakfast show here on the Voice of Islam. Just before the break, we were talking about the news, what's been happening, and the majority of the headlines were talking about Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss, uh, their debate slash conversation, um, and essentially just pitching who will be uh, the next prime minister and um, um, you know putting in a good word for themselves there. Um, those were the majority of the headlines. We also covered. Um, the Russia and Ukraine um, crisis slightly um, talking about uh, the gas and how the gas supplies have been cut and also how um, uh, the f- uh, fuel supply will be uh, has has been reduced and will also uh, continue to be uh, reduced so um, Europe is in for a hard time uh, in terms of energy uh, energy uh, is at the moment already so high as it is um, so it's essentially it's uh, on top of a forthcoming recession 
uh, we also have to be worried about energy um, so so there's not really much to say apart from um, it's, it's not going well uh, for all of Europe uh, to start with um, our first segment unfortunately this isn't uh, any lighter than the so uh, than the previous uh, topics talked about Shinzo Abe the assassination and how this shocking event unraveled um, you know let us your uh, let us know your thoughts on this at Voice of Islam UK on Twitter um, and feel free to call us on 0286877878 on this topic or any topics in particular or any questions comments or queries but uh, the gist of the story is as follows on Friday the 8th of July 2022 Japan's former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe died after being shot twice at a political campaign event Shinzo Abe was making a camp- uh, campaign speech when a gunman attacked him from behind Japan's former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe uh, age 67 has died after being shot twice at a political campaign event He was in the process of giving a speech when a gunman attacked him from behind. The suspect has been identified as Nara resident uh, Tetsuya Yamagami who has been taken into custody. He's believed to be a former member of J- Japan's maritime self-defense force. Shinzo Abe was in cardiac arrest on arrival at the Nara Medical University Hospital. Unsuccessful attempts were made to resuscitate him and he was given a blood transfusion but pronounced dead at uh 1703 local time which is uh 803 uh gmt um so to talk about um who was Shinzo Abe and what were some of his achievements or some of the programs that he introduced such as Abenomics um so to cover the five greatest achievements of Shinzo Abe Japan's former prime minister you know, this is taken from um an extract in Tatler Asia Shinzo Abe was the prime minister of Japan and president of the Liberal Democratic Party from 2006 to 2007 and again from 2012 to 2020 and he is the longest serving prime minister in Japanese history When Shinzo Abe came to office in 2006 Japan was facing economic turmoil in 2012 he launched a plan known as Abenomics This included massive monetary stimulus and increased government spending. With success, the country saw a great boost in not just its economy, but also in consumer and investor confidence. As he revived the economy and increased the world's confidence in Japan, he managed to secure the 2020 Tokyo Olympics, which was later postponed to 2021 as a result of the pandemic. In 2014 during his drastic defense reform of Japan's defense system Shinzo Abe relaxed the ban on the exporting of arms he changed the laws such that weapons were only allowed to be shipped if they contributed to global peace this meant that recently when Ukraine was invaded by Russia Japan was able to send non-lethal military aid to Ukraine in 2018 uh, Shinzo Abe created a national security council which strengthened the prime minister's role uh in security affairs at the time it was considered one of the most ambitious reorganizations of Japan's foreign and security uh, policy apparatus since the end 
of World War II. And on countless occasions, His Holiness Hazrat Mirza Masroor Ahmad, may Allah be his helper, stressed the importance of maintaining peace and justice in society. At the ninth annual peace symposium, His Holiness, may Allah be his helper, said, there is only one way to save the world from destruction and devastation that is heading towards, and that that is that we must all endeavor to spread love, affection, and a sense of community. Most importantly, the world must come to recognize its creator who is one God. This is because, because it is the recognition of the creator that leads us towards love and compassion for his creation. And when this becomes part of our character, it is then that we become recipients of God's love. In this address, his in the same address, His Holiness, may Allah be his helper, has also stated, in some countries, members of the public are fighting and waging wars uh, amongst themselves. In some nations, the public is fighting against the government, or conversely, the rulers are attacking their own people. Terrorist groups are fueling anarchy and disorder to fulfill their vested interests, so they are arbitrarily killing innocent women, children, and the elderly. In some countries, as a means to fulfill their own interests, political parties are warring with each other rather than coming together for the betterment of the nations. We also find some governments and countries are continu continuously casting their glances enviously in the direction of the resources of other nations. The major powers of the world are consumed by their efforts to maintain their supremacy and leave no stone unturned in their efforts towards pursuing um, their goal. Um, so these words are, uh, ring extremely true today as well, as we've just seen in the news, um, the crisis that we're seeing, the energy crisis, um, and also with the headlines of Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss going, going at it. Um, as the headline said, um, the gloves are off. Um, you know, so government parties are warring with each other. In this particular segment, we have seen that, um, you know, the public, a member of the public has um, assassinated the former prime minister. Um, so there is an incredible amount of um, unrest and just issues just brewing. Um, so we must all stand by these words um, um, and pursue them to the best we can and ensure that we are all striving for, for peace. Um, but to talk about uh, the matter in much more detail than I am able to give, uh, we have with us on the line Ra Mason, who is uh, uh, a uh, Sasakawa Associate Professor of International Relations and Japanese Foreign Policy at the University of East Anglia, the UEA. After completing a double degree PhD, Ra became um, course leader of Asia Pacific Studies at the University of Central Lancashire, uh, while at uh, the University of Lancashire, he was awarded a JSPS fellowship to research nationalism in Okinawa at the University of uh, Ryukyu uh, before being appointed Associate Professor of Public Policy at Tohoku University. Ra is the author of Japan's Relations uh, with North Korea and the Recalibration of Risk and co-author of Regional Risk and Security in Japan, an OK Risk State. In addition to publishing widely on Okinawa, uh, Djibouti and DPRK, as well as uh, writing for the Asa uh, Asahi uh, Shimbun's Asia-Japan Watch, uh, the 
Conversation UK and the Asan Forum. Assalamu alaikum, peace be upon you, and uh, welcome to the breakfast show. Uh, Thank you very much. Thank you so much for coming on the show, uh, Doctor. Um, you know, being a... Uh, we're talking about the Shinzo Abe assassination and how this sh- shocking event unraveled, as I'm sure you're aware. But, um, you know, being a British uh, born and bred, what, what invoked your interest in Japan and East Asia in general so much as to pursue it as a profession? Yeah, thank you. I mean, <clears throat> it goes back a long, long way, really, into my childhood. Um, when I was very young, as a family, we had Japanese friends. Um, and without going into a very long kind of explanation of, of how that played out, ultimately, I was given an opportunity to go to Japan at a, a young age. I was around 17 mm. um, and kind of went out into the, into the sticks. And at the time, very few people spoke well, very few foreigners spoke Japanese and very few Japanese in the countryside spoke good English. Mm. So it was a way of kind of just immersing myself completely in the language and culture. And that spurred me to then study that more deeply. And when I came back to the UK, I, I took it up as a, as a course at university and, and it just kind of snowballed from there. Okay. And, you know, uh, back in 2017, you styled an article um, titled Japan's Controversial, Shrewd and Ambitious uh, Shinzo Abe. However, the suspect uh, uh, assassinator stated that he did not hold a grudge against Abe's political beliefs. So what do you think his motive was? Yeah, so this is somewhat um, unclear still at this stage in terms of precision. But simply put, the motive for killing Shinzo Abe was actually not so much political as personal. And that's to say the um, main suspect who is almost certainly going to be convicted of the crime, who is Tetsuya Yamagami, was actually um, the son of someone who was relatively wealthy but invested heavily in a religious organization, a unification church, um, sometimes known as the Moonies because of um, it's Chairman Moon, who's Korean uh, founder. Their their religious cult basically was blamed by the suspect for bankrupting his mother and their family. And that religious cult has close associations with right-wing conservatives in Japan, one of whom is Shinzo Abe and Abe's extended family. Oh, I see. And did... Was there a connection then between, um, um, do you think there was a relevant connection between uh, this uh, religious cult and Shinzo Abe then? Yeah, there definitely is. Um, He gave uh, various addresses, for example, to celebrate um, commemorative days of the the cult or the the church, depending on how how you'd like to term it. Um, He certainly, he, he and his family had various associations with sub-branches or affiliate um, associations that were linked to that church. And you have to bear in mind that this is an um, organization which is not purely religious, it's also political. And that's to say the church itself was set up, um, as much as anything, as a bastion against communism. And so mm. in both South Korea and Japan, you have powerful anti-communist conservative right-wing forces of which Abe is a part in Japan and the so-called Moonies are a part of in Korea and then and then the wider world as they expanded so 
that political linkage is probably actually stronger than Abe's actual religious beliefs that might have been, may or may not have been linked to that church. Oh, I see. And, you know, Abe is known as, uh, by many, as the shadow shogun. And, you know, why is that? Yeah, so this is um, really a term that refers to his underlying political power in Japan. And that's to say that compared to other politicians, particularly other, other leaders or those who become leader, Abe was able to garner an enormous amount of influence because he leads the most powerful faction, or led, I should say, the most powerful faction of the LDP, which is the ruling party in Japan. And Japan has a strange type of democracy whereby, in reality, it's essentially a one-party state, albeit with the facade of, of democracy. But that one party, the LDP, is divided into several factions, of which Abe was the strongest. So even after he was no longer the prime minister and stepped down, he was still behind the scenes, in the shadows, if you like to use mm. the term, he was still pulling the strings and exerting a huge amount of influence over the party, even though Suga and then Kishida had become the actual prime minister. And, you know, to talk more in, um, more in depth about the actual assassination, you know, um, Japan as a country is, is one of the countries with the strictest gun uh, control laws, with the lowest number of gun de- uh, deaths per capita, at 0.03 per 100,000 uh, people, according to Small Arms Survey in 2020. Uh, but uh, Shinzo Abe was um, assassinated with a homemade gun, which was bought, uh, which brought about this shocking demise. Would you kindly uh, shed some insight onto how such policies work? Yeah, I mean, clearly in, in this case they, they didn't work, right? Mm. Um, which is which is what is so shocking about the the crime itself, but. In the broader scheme of things, Japan's gun laws have been very effective in reducing or limiting gun-related crime. And I think, you know, if we compare, for example, um, Japan with the United States, its close alliance partner, clearly um, gun crime is tiny in comparison to what happens in that country. So those strict gun laws have been fairly effective. But you also have to bear in mind that the culture in Japan is very different to other states that they could be compared to, right? other countries that they might be um, drawn comparisons with. So Japan, for example, in its education system, puts a huge emphasis on pacifism. It has a constitution with a so-called pacifist clause, or at least an anti-militarist clause, that prevents um, the use of violence or force in the international arena. And it has a staunchly anti-weapon and anti-nuclear Um, lobby as well. And all of these things go back to the the kind of rebuilding of Japan in the post-war era in response to its earlier generations of militarism. So all of those things mean that um, any kind of violent weapon is deeply frowned upon in Japan. And there is a, a huge push at the social level to ensure a certain degree of pacifism. And in that sense, yes, it is a very shocking crime. Um, I think it is extremely unusual, but it it highlights various things. It it highlights the breakdown of certain sets of values in that Japanese society. It also highlights the ability of people now to use internet technology in order to be able to build something like a gun, 
And it also perhaps illustrates the fact that Japan had become, certainly in, in terms of political violence, had become slightly, um, let's say, loose in the way that it was enacting those laws. That's to say that you know security and the kind of strict control over speakers and those who could view them and get close to them wasn't being enforced very carefully because you know there wasn't uh, nobody had imagined that a crime like this was going to be committed you, you know this isn't um the first time political violence has occurred um even even within japan um with the assassination um of uh, inehiro uh, asanuma um, um who i'm sure you remember was um killed with a with a, a knife uh, again giving a, a political speech but you know to talk uh, on the mi- uh, macro side of things do you think do you think political violence is on the rise and if so why well this is a huge question um i mean if you if you look at, at the case of asanoma or you look at um previous very rare assassinations that go back in in the post-war era, say to the 1960s, um, or deaths as a result of political protest. So, for example, against the security treaty ratification in in 1960, where there were huge demonstrations and some of those opposing the treaty were, or, or, you know, a couple of demonstrators lost their lives in that particular piece of political violence. Um, you know, these are all very isolated incidents, or even something like the, the Asahara um, uh, sarin gas attacks in the 1990s. Mm. These, you know, they all have strange and slightly kind of um, irregular patterns to them, which would suggest they're fairly isolated incidents. And I don't think you could really make a very strong case for the idea that these have somehow escalated in sequence and are leading to a greater amount of political violence not in Mm. japan right um i mean there are underlying forms of political violence in japan that's to say that there has always been a certain level of intimidation from right-leaning conservative forces towards the left and there has always been you know isolated um extremist acts but i don't think we're seeing a concerted increase in regularized political violence, say in the way that we are seeing somewhere like Sri Lanka or, or mm. in the United States or something like that. And I think if you're, if you're talking about, um, it, is this representative of greater political violence in the wider world, then again, I think the link between Japan and the wider world would be very tenuous. You know, I think there is clearly, if we look at the, the war zones around the world and we look at some of the chaos that is ensuing, there is certainly concern over increasing political violence more generally, but I don't think that the shooting of Shinzo Abe is necessarily representative of that. I think Japan is fairly insular in the way it conducts its politics, hmm. and I think this is a, in some respects, one-off personal grudge killing rather than something that's symptomatic of growing political violence. And do you think, um, in general, um, the way the uh, Japanese government um, is uh, being run is is you know good for the people is it is it run in a way where um you know people are able to have their say or you know as before as you were saying that um uh, uh, 
uh, as uh, the shadow shogun he was uh, running the strings under uh, the party when he was not in um, uh, in in power is mm. yeah i mean it, it's a good question I, I you know my gut feeling having spent a long time in japan and researched japanese politics is that really people are not getting anything like what they would really like and mm. that japan is fundamentally not a very democratic society you have relatively constrictive press laws for example mm. you have very high penalties for breaking secrecy laws um for in any way going really against government policy if if you are you know caught mm. um in things like drug related crime if you're caught in doing anything that is deemed as a threat to the state then the penalties are very high and the prosecution process is um, let's say <clears throat> limited in terms of its um, rights and privileges it is for the suspect to say the least but having said all that um, compared to the vast majority of countries that most of us might have the chance to live in or that you know could be compared to a large number of other parts of the world Japanese population are relatively set satisfied and you know there is very low levels of crime and a relatively high level of social cohesion and um, you know uh, social order as well as very high rates of literacy mm -hmm. you know reasonably high rates of, of, of or living standards and and rates of income and so forth so it's a very difficult question to answer because mm. from the outside looking in it would appear that with a little bit of scrutiny japan is a fairly undemocratic and somewhat authoritarian state masquerading as a functioning liberal democracy but from the inside a large number of the japanese population are actually buying into a vision of japan which is overseen by that ruling party. So, you know, it's a, it's a very complex picture in that respect. Mm. And as Japan's uh, longest serving prime minister, what impact has uh, Abe's assassination had? And in your view, um, what is Japan's outlook um, and the prospects uh, in light of his two cabinets? Yes, I think this is an open question at the moment, but my suspicion is that, ironically, the killing of Shinzo Abe will actually result in some of his pet projects or some of his personal policy goals being fulfilled more quickly than they could have been if he was still alive. And the reason for that is because by killing Abe, it's turned him into a, a kind of martyr almost mm. of the conservative right. And so some of those within the other factions of that ruling party within the LDP who might have opposed him, um, including the Prime Minister Kishida, in some areas, are now pushing more strongly for the kinds of policies that he wanted to pursue. And they're also doing so with a renewed and increased popular mandate following recent upper house elections. And the results of those elections were very pro-Abe, partly because he had been killed. So there was a kind of sympathy vote um, for the Abe faction and certainly for the LDP more generally. And what that means in real terms for Japan going forward, not least, is that constitutional reform is now more likely. So 
that constitution that I mentioned a little while ago that has the pacifist clause in it, preventing Japan from uh, possessing an official armed forces and from using armed force overseas, that, for example, could be revised and Japan's self-defense forces could be officially recognized, which would ultimately allow them to take part more proactively in things like collective defense or, or other peacekeeping operations or other overseas military campaigns. So that would be a, a longer term change, but it would be something that is quite fundamental and it would reshape Japan's international role and therefore the regional dynamics of, of international relations going forward. Dr. Ra, it's been um, an absolute pleasure to have you on today. Um, a very insightful conversation we've uh, just had with you. Um, and thank you so much for uh, coming on today. Thank you very much indeed. That was uh, Dr. Ra Mason, uh, who is a, a Sas Sasakawa Associate Professor of International Relations and Japanese Foreign Policy at the University of East Anglia. After completing a double degree PhD, Ra became course leader of Asia Pacific Studies at the University of Central Lancashire um, and he has also um, uh, published widely on Okinawa, Djibouti and DPRK as well as writing for the Asa Asahi Shimbun's Asia Japan Watch, the Cons uh, Conversation UK and the Asin Forum and you can, um, if you enjoyed that conversation um, or want to know more, uh, reach him on Twitter at politics underscore UEA and at UEAR, um, uh, uh, UEA Research. Um, but if you'd like to contact us as well, call us on 028-687-7878. Um, and let us know any questions, comments, or queries. Um, aside from that, you can also reach us on Twitter at Voice of Islam UK. Uh, we will be taking a short break for the 8 o'clock news um, and we will uh, continue with our second segment after the news. Assalamu alaikum, peace be upon you. Welcome back to The Breakfast Show here on The Voice of Islam. That was uh, a brief um, segment of the news and we are just finishing up this uh, segment on Shinzo Abe um, with a short clip um, we have to play for you, uh, which is how violence and weapons cannot be justified. Um, and we will play that for you now. It's in view of the unexpected assassination of Yitzhak Rabin, his vice prime minister yesterday, an ever-growing influence of the extremists who tried to derail the peace process by acts of extreme violence and suicide attacks on civilian targets. What are your Excellency's views about the continuation of the peace process and its possible successful outcome in the Middle East? Please. See, I do not, as you must have understood by now, I do not believe in any violence in any form being permitted by God to human beings to be committed against other human beings who are as much his creation. There is a basic principle which would not be violated. Logically, I do not believe that the swords or bullets or coercions or tortures can reach mind to change them and reach hearts to change them. These are superficial things. They can behead people, but cannot change the idea, ideas in the heads. They can pierce the heart, but cannot convince the hearts. In fact, they create 
an opposite reaction to the direction of the force. So it's very foolish to try to change people's ideas and beliefs through the help of arms and weapons. That was uh, um, the voice of uh, His Holiness uh, Mirza, uh, Hazrat Mirza Tahir Ahmed, um, from a uh, may Allah uh, have mercy on him from a question and answer session on the 5th of November 1995 and His Holiness was talking about how violence and weapons cannot be justified or reach the heart of others that does uh, sadly conclude this segment uh, for today um, um, and we will be moving straight on um, to our second segment which is deciphering the human body 37 trillion cells uh, to transforming healthcare. And the gist of the story is um, that, in fact, the, the average human body does contain about 37 trillion cells. Cells are the basic unit of life and are vital for our survival. Cells are definitely intriguing uh, things as they have the ability to com communicate with each other and create a connected network to build uh, an organism. In this segment, we'll be discussing the purpose of cells and also elaborating upon how further research into the cells of the body can lead to revolutionary discoveries in healthcare. So scientists who were trying to determine which type types of cells make up the lining of the trachea or windpipe discovered a new type of cell that could transform our understanding and treatment of cystic fibrosis. The first time the team co-led by Aviv uh, uh, Rajev at the Broad Institute of MIT and Harvard discovered these cells and they were looking at an an uh, analysis of 300 cells in the trachea of mice. The scientists found a new type of cell in the trachea. At a seminar in 2017 it was revealed that another team from the United States and Switzerland had found the same thing. These groups confirmed that these new uh, cells exist in the human airways as well as mice. These new cells have not been noticed before because they make up around 1% of the cells in the airways. Understanding the functions of cells will help to better understand the immune system and this will enable us to design new medicines to help the immune system. Um, for example, uh, to better fight uh, cancer. But to talk in more detail about this topic, we will be talking to... Uh, our first guest on this segment, uh, Dr. Amy Cherry, uh, who is a who is currently a senior lecturer in biochemistry at the University of Worcester. She completed a PhD in microbiology and biochemistry at the University of Leeds be before working at the National Institute of Medical Research in London and the Karolinska Institute in Stockholm. Her research focuses on understanding the roles of proteins within cancerous cells. In particular, she studies the structures and interactions of proteins involved in the hedgehog signaling pathway with the aim for identifying new targets for drug development. Assalamu alaikum, peace be upon you, and welcome uh, to The Breakfast Show, Dr. Amy. Thank you very much for inviting me. Thank you so much for coming on as well. And we are talking about um you know deciphering the human body 37 trillion cells to transforming healthcare um why is protein essential for the human body 
Well, the first thing is to realise that the protein isn't just a single entity. I think that lots of people, when they think about protein, they think about there's protein in the muscles, which is true because our muscles do have um, proteins which are involved in contracting them. But um, I, I looked at the latest data from the Human Protein Organization, which has shown that there's um, evidence for the existence of 18,407 different human proteins. And there'll be many more than that. Those are just the ones that there are evidence for. So all of those proteins will have different roles within the cells. So for example, some of those proteins are enzymes, which are molecules which help to speed up the chemical reaction in our body, um, for example, the proteases in our stomach which help digest proteins. And then some proteins will have structural roles. You may have heard of collagen mm. because they talk about it a lot in skincare adverts because collagen is a structural protein which is found in connective tissue and skin. Um, and as, as we get older, you'll see how, how important collagen is because we start to produce less collagen and our skin becomes saggy and we start to get wrinkles and then other proteins are involved in movement of molecules so within each cell there are some proteins which sort of act as train tracks for moving molecules around and, and some proteins which act as trains which carry the cargo and then some proteins are involved in communication so it's important that our different tissues and organs send messages to one another so they send chemicals in the blood and when those uh, chemicals arrive at cells it's proteins on the outside of the cell which are called receptors and they bind to these chemicals and they receive the message and then tell other proteins in the cell what to do as, as a response to that message so so proteins have a great diverse role in our cells and um, they're, they're just very essential for our functioning and you know um you've kind of touched upon this already which is um you know how exactly do proteins function yeah so i've told you some of the roles and because they they all have very diverse roles each protein will function in a different way so what what each protein has in common is that they're all built up of these little building blocks called amino acids and there's 20 different amino acids and each of these building blocks they've got different properties so they've got different shapes and different attractive forces mm. so some of them are attracted towards negative charges some of them are attracted towards positive charges some of them like interacting with water some of them don't like interacting with water so each protein on average a protein has got about 300 of these different building blocks and they're all joined together in a long chain and they fold into a three-dimensional structure which is very specific for the role that the protein does so if I give you an example there's an enzyme called amylase which we make in our saliva which is used for breaking down um, the carbohydrate starch into sugars and amylase has got a very specific three-dimensional structure which has got a pocket in it for binding to the starch and it's also got some attractive forces and these attractive forces the atoms in the starch and that's what helps break the bonds in the starch to break it up into sugars whereas a different protein collagen um, which has a structural role has a very different structure uh, it's made of different amino acids and and that means that it makes a kind of extended long chain and three of these chains wrap around one another in order to make um, a sort of thick rope-like structure and that's what gives it its structural properties. 
So really, the the reason that that proteins can do such a diverse um, array of jobs is because that um, they can create so many different types of structures. Yeah, the uh, the structure of a, a protein is really really fascinating, isn't it? Like uh, with all the different uh, ionic bonds and um, the sort of uh, quaternary structure and the secondary structure that it has and it folds into. Um, You've also touched upon this already a little bit um, as well, um, which is, you know, what are the different kinds of proteins found in the human body? You talked about uh, muscles, you talked about uh, hemoglobin as uh, the sort of uh, the train transport uh, protein and uh, collagen as well. So how do they help to diversify the cells as well? Yeah, so it's important to realize that all of our cells contain all of the information needed to make any of our proteins, any of those 18,000 proteins. But each cell will only make particular types of proteins. So, so the information, the genes, our genes, which is encoded in our DNA, um, and you can think of the DNA as being like a library, but each cell only reads some of the information in the library. It only reads some of those books in order to read the recipes for making the different proteins. So. So yes, I've given you the examples of um, the the salivary glands will make the enzyme amylase, the skin will make the protein collagen. Um, some other nice examples are um, white blood cells, um, you may be aware are important for fighting infection, and so white blood cells make um, antibodies, which are, which are proteins responsible for identifying and binding to pathogenic organisms and destroying them. And how can, we've talked so much about, um, you know, proteins, giving them uh, an intro, giving them context in, in the human body. How can protein structure modeling be beneficial for fighting disease? And, you know, could artificial proteins be made to help tackle disease? Yeah, absolutely. So, so there's kind of two questions there. So in terms of understanding the structures of the proteins, this is what I've done in my research career since I did my PhD. I've used a technique which is called X-ray crystallography in order to determine the structure of proteins. So a nice example from my PhD is that I was working on a protein from the hepatitis C virus, mm. which is a virus which infects the liver and causes liver disease. And I was working on protein which is responsible for copying the viral genes um, in order for the virus to make new viral particles. So this protein is really essential for the virus to be able to replicate. So the idea of this is that if you determine the structure of the protein, then it's going to help you understand how the protein works and help you design drugs which can bind to it and stop it from working. And if you can stop that protein from working, then you can stop the virus from replicating. And this is true for a whole host of diseases. So, so any pathogens, any viruses, any bacteria, if you understand the structures of their proteins and you can potentially stop them working. It's also very true in cancer. So, so cancerous cells often have some proteins which are active which shouldn't be active or that they're, they're overactive. And so if we understand which proteins are overactive and um, find out about their structure, we can potentially design drugs to, to inhibit them and stop the cancerous cells from growing. Um, so the other part of the question was about uh, could we use artificial proteins to help tackle disease? 
And in fact, we, we already do that. So there's actually over 100 therapeutic proteins which have been approved for clinical use. Uh, so one that we're all very familiar with, I imagine, is uh, the hormone insulin, mm. which controls our blood sugar levels. Um, and this is administered to patients who have diabetes mellitus because they're missing insulin. So, so originally when this was um, first given as a treatment, the source of the insulin was that it was extracted from the pancreases of animals. Uh, but since then, scientists have developed uh, new techniques and what they've done is they've taken the genes, which is the information for making the insulin, and put that into a microorganism yeast. And then they get the yeast to make this, this protein, um, the insulin protein for us. So in a way, that's kind of artificial. It's a, it's the natural human protein because it's the sequence of the of the human gene, but it's been made in an artificial way. But scientists have also gone a step further because they've tried to improve the properties of the insulin. So what they've done is they've slightly altered the DNA sequence. So they've altered um, the order slightly of these amino acid building blocks in the protein. And by doing that, they were able to make a different form of insulin which acts more quickly in the body but for shorter periods of time which means that its its action can be much more precisely defined and it has has better more reliable outcomes for patients and there's, there's many examples of of, um, of treatments which are proteins another good one is uh, factor 8 which is a blood clotting protein which is um, lacking in patients with haemophilia A um, and so so these patients have been given external factor 8 um, for a long period and again scientists have tried to improve the factor 8 because when it's given to patients um, it gets degraded in the body um, and so, so they obviously need to have more and more treatments uh, but scientists have found another protein which is very stable in the body so what they've done is they've taken the gene for factor eight and the gene for this stable protein and put them together and that's made what's called a fusion protein and then this factor eight when it's given to patients it lasts for much longer in the body dr amy it's um been so insightful to have you on today and um we wish you a wonderful week ahead as well Okay, thank you very much. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you so much. Uh, that was Dr. Thank you. A thank you so much. That was uh, Dr. Amy Terry, uh, uh, who is currently a senior lecturer uh, in biochemistry at the University of Worcester. She completed a PhD in microbiology and biochemistry at the University of Leeds before working at the National Institute of Medical Research in London and the Karolinska Institute in Stockholm. It's been uh, wonderful to uh, talk to her about this, uh, such an intriguing topic. Um, you know, the body really is such a wonderful thing. And, um, you know, all these um, uh, developments and uh, breakthroughs that are uh, coming through um, uh, by scientists and research and uh, what we are able to achieve as a human collective is uh, extremely wonderful. Um, to describe perhaps uh, in um, or uh, uh, to describe some of the types of cells found in our body, such as stem cells, muscle cells, endothelial cells, um, we'll look at this uh, brief uh, brief uh, description uh, 
provided by the researchers. Stem cells originate as unspecialized cells and have the ability to develop into specialized cells that can be used to build specific organs and tissues. Stem cells can divide and replicate many times in order to replenish and repair tissue as well. From transporting oxygen through the body to fighting infection, blood cell activity is vital to life. Blood cells are produced by bone marrow. The three major types of cells in the blood are red blood cells, white blood cells and platelets. Muscle cells form tissue which enable all bodily movement. The three types of muscle cells are skeletal, cardiac and smooth. Um, so, um, to talk about um, a research that is happening uh, within the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, um, AMRA is the Ahmadiyya Muslim Research Associate, Association um, Group. This associ association <laughs> was founded to revive the Islamic Golden Age. The scientific methods used today are credited to the Muslim scientists of the past, and therefore it is imperative to bring the Muslim scientists, researchers, and students together towards groundbreaking research in different fields of science. AMRA is encouraging Muslim youth to pursue careers in academia and push the boundaries of human knowledge. Its membership is wide-reaching, incorporating researchers in the fields of theoretical physics, renewable energy and medical treatment, through to economics, theology and ancient languages. Their mission is to put a spotlight on the diverse research being conducted by members by regularly featuring selected submissions. They look forward to reading about secular or re religious research. At the 10th annual AMRA conference, His Holiness Hazrat Mirza Musroor Ahmed, may Allah be his helper, the current uh, head of the Ahmadi Muslim community said, Having gathered here at, uh, and held this conference, you must all consider it your mission to pursue excellence within your chosen field. You must reflect upon how you can develop a greater understanding of the world, develop new technologies or systems through which humanity can benefit. At the AMRA conference in 2019, His Holiness uh, uh, also said, at this time of intellectual ignorance uh, amongst the uh, Islamic world, it is a great challenge for Ahmadi Muslim scientists and researchers to revive the honour and dignity of Islam in the global academic arena. Indeed, it should be your ambition to take up the glorious mantle of enlightenment adorned by the great Muslim scholars and inventors of Middle Ages. Um, so, um, definitely uh, some food for thought there. Um, and, you know, as... Um, Ahmadi Muslims, uh, um, we have to strive for a bright future as foretold by the founder of the Ahmadi Muslim community, the promised Messiah, Hazrat Mirza Ghulam Ahmad, uh, Ahmad, on whom be peace, who said, The members of my sect shall so excel in knowledge and insight that they will confound everyone with the light of their truth and by um, uh, dint of their arguments and signs. And also, the current worldwide head of the Ahmadi Muslim community, His Holiness Hazrat Mirza Musroor Ahmad, may Allah be his helper, has said, uh, Therefore, I advise the youth, immerse yourself in studies to the exclusion of everything else. Advance so much in every field of education that your minimum target is a Nobel Prize that requires hard work over a long period. Um, that was um, said in a speech on... Um, the seventeenth of April two thousand and eight, um, and we should also look at the examples of past-renowned Muslim scholars like Ibn Yunus al-Khwarizmi, al-Biruni, 
and Ibn Sina or Avicenna, to name but a few. We should study their lives and be motivated to revive the golden age of Islam once again. We will be taking a very short break and we will um, be starting our next segment um, after the break. Yeah. The giver of life, the one who gives life to whoever he wills. How can you disbelieve in Allah? When you were without life, he gave you life, and then he will cause you to die, then restore you to life, and then to him shall you be made to return. Listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Salam alaikum. Uh, may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon you. Welcome back to the Breakfast Show here on the Voice of Islam. We are moving uh, uh, very quickly onto our next segment: the trait of resilience, its source, purpose, and necessity. And the Oxford Dictionary des- defines resilience as the capacity to recover quickly from difficulties. So resilience is an attribute which enables us to cope and deal with difficult or challenging life experiences. A number of factors can affect our levels of resilience. And whilst people with the resilience don't feel less grief or despair, they utilize healthy coping skills to overcome their difficulties. In this segment, we'll, be, we'll discuss the source, causes and purpose of resilience, while also touching upon how we can become more resilient as well. And as usual, we will have a, uh, uh, an amazing lineup of guests for this segment. Um, so, to go into some of the discussion points, resilience is a, psych- a psychological quality that allows uh, some of us to be knocked down by adversities of life, such as accident, loss, violence, or trauma, and come back at least as strong um, as before, if not stronger. We can build resil- resiliency by reframing negative thoughts into optimism having faith and confidence in ourselves over our fear and engage in positive self-talk during overwhelming times. Um, There are many different types of resilience, but it's uh, much better to hear this from uh, an expert. Um, So we will be talking to Dr. Audrey Tung, who is a chartered psychologist and award-winning author 
the Leader's Guide to Resilience 2021, and uh, this was recently awarded highly commended in leadership in the 2022 UK Business Book Awards, and um, um, he's also won the Firebird uh, Book Award for leadership uh, from Speak Up and Talk Radio. Uh, apologies. She hosts uh, podcasts, uh, Retrain Your Brain for Success, and the Wellbeing Lounge on N Live Radio, and is presenter for Psych Back to Basics on a Disrupted TV and resident psychologist on Channel 4's Don't Die, Lose Weight and The Chrissy B Show. Assalamu alaikum, peace be upon you and um, welcome to The Breakfast Show. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Audrey, for coming on today. Um, we are talking about the trait of resilience, its source, purpose and necessity. So just to start things off, how would you define resilience? A lot of people think that resilience is about knowing how to survive. That's actually just the beginning of it. In truth, when we're in a crisis, most of us can actually just about get through because the adrenaline is going. It's almost instinctual. But actually, resilience is what happens after that. And then people think it's just bouncing back. But really, that's not enough. Because who wants to bounce back to where we were? It's actually better to bounce higher. So for me, resilience is being able to navigate a crisis, be able to rebuild when you're exhausted at the time where the crisis has stopped and the support probably has stopped as well, but actually then move from being fine to flourishing. And a lot of the research has shown that adversity creates conditions in us which allow us to thrive better than a smooth sailing experience would have done. And do you think resilience is a learned skill or, or is it something you're just born with? It can be a bit of both. The point or the phrase that's often used is you don't know how strong you are until you're tested. Yeah. And whilst there's no resilience gene, there may well be something in our brain structure which makes us slower to anger, which can help us learn or it might make us more able to take a step back and think about it and certainly personality theorists who have studied grit they've come back to the big five traits extroversion introversion agreeableness neuroticism and openness and they suggest that those sorts of traits or some combinations of them may be more indicative of how we would cope under pressure however I would also say that our early experiences teach us what the world is like. We watch our caregivers. We can learn from them. And then actually, if we're thrown into a crisis and we're having to figure it out for ourselves, we already give ourselves a blueprint to learn for next time. And also, um, last year, your book, The Leader's Guide to Resilience, was published. Could you tell us a little bit about the book as well as the role of resilience in cultivating effective leadership? Yes, of course. I drew a lot from the idea of resilient cities because that's how we cultivate resilient communities. And resilient cities follow urban planning principles. They attract and maintain courageous people. They harness drive. They inspire passion. They nurture a collective mindset and network that's responsive and adaptive to change and those are the very traits that we need in effective leadership to be an effective leader you need to be able to sustain something to lead but you also need to attract and sustain 
uh, retain staff to be sustainable and to keep you going. And you know what? What is um, what would you define as um, uh, the sort of uh, the people going through um, to create this resilience? Is it like a famine? Is it a recession? Actually, when it comes to trauma research, it can be anything that you find traumatic. Mm. So just to take from trauma research, one would say abuse as a child uh, is horrible, it's horrendous. That would be traumatic. But if a parent simply ignored your needs or impressed their own views on you, that can feel just as traumatic to some people. So when it comes to resilience, it can be any sort of adversity that we or our business are facing. And really what's important is how we navigate through that. As I said, most of us can survive. Most of us can get through. So at the start of the pandemic, most businesses got through for a few months. But the question came when we look at how they sustained themselves over the course of two years. And that would be sometimes with government support, sometimes without. So it can be any adversity. It can depend on the context in which you experience that adversity and also how flexible and adaptable you are in order to seek the help you need. And is there a significant... Um you know, before we were talking about, um, you know, wh- whether it was a learned skill or an inborn trait, and um, you touched upon the sort of um, um, the neuro uh, aspects of uh, personality and how that can affect it as well. But is there a significant difference in in terms of gender in in the resilience of men and women? That's a really interesting question because it could simply be you're asking why are some people more resilient than others and that can be due to nature it can be due to our experiences going back to trauma research they use a model called the window of tolerance which is the optimal level of arousal under which we can function without having issues and some of us have quite a large window some of us have Mm. quite a small one when it comes to men and women we could actually argue perhaps it depends on the adversity so it might be under long-term pressure women may fare better for example they do go through childbirth they do go through caring quite a lot because of the way society might have constructed their role but when it comes to immediate short-term pressure it might well be that men fare better but Hmm. i think a lot of it does depend on our early experiences in many ways what's expected of us and how we've learned and grown and just as a final question, what, what are some of the ways in which a person can build resilience? Well, I'd like to draw from positive psychology. They say there are five key things that build our emotional and mental fortitude. They include building positive emotions, finding engagement in what we do, cherishing our healthy relationships, seeking meaning and connection in our lives, and celebrating achievements. So, here's some tips mm-hmm. <laughs> for building positive emotions. Give and receive gratitude. So it's not necessarily about keeping a journal, but just looking around your room. Be grateful for what you have there. Appreciate it. Recognize that it's important to you. And then if someone does something nice for you, tell them. And if they have told you thank you, 
accept it and hold it as a gift because we all know it's much easier to complain. Mm. <laughs> and another thing we can do to build positive emotion is to actually create a vision carousel. So take photographs or screenshots of wonderful experiences and memories, including thank yous from clients and, and other people to remind us that we've made a difference in their life. When it comes to finding engagement, reflect on the things you love. Maybe it's things you loved as a child. And see if you can build those into your life. So even if you're in a job where you can't lead, for example, maybe you can join in a football club and coach young people or something like that to give you that engagement. Then when it comes to our healthy relationships, Check in on people, even people you haven't spoken to for ages. Don't sit there and think, oh, they haven't called me. <laughs> Give them a call and see what's going on. But also, again, recognize who you let into your life. Too often we surround ourselves with exhausting people and it's actually really important to focus on things that we find important, be those values and actively seek out those people who give us enjoyment, who show those values, who boost our energy when we see them. When it comes to seeking meaning, my little tip here is to think back on your life achievements, but actually unpack what the meaning was. So for example, you might have won a certificate for something and everyone says, oh, well done, you won a certificate. But actually you might think, do you know what? It was the hard work I put into that that really made the difference. That's the meaning. And therefore, you may be better as a teacher or working in some capacity where you can help and see people grow. And then finally, when it comes to recognizing achievement, we don't need to think about the big things. Focus on the little wins. Just be that little bit better than you were yesterday. And then that in itself is a win. Dr. Audrey, that's uh, uh, an amazing um amazing advice you've uh, given us uh, with so much energy we thank you so much uh, for coming on uh, today's show um, and we hope to see you again at another show thank you and any time I'd be absolutely delighted thank you so much that was uh, Dr. Audrey Tang uh, who is a chartered psychologist and award winning author The Leader's Guide to Resilience 2021 um, but um, as, as we do on um uh, the breakfast show here in the voice of Islam. We do like to have um, multiple um, um, opinions and guests, and you know, look at a uh, topic from multiple different angles, and um, have uh, uh, amazing, uh, amazingly broad overview. So we will be talking to our next guest, Dr. John Finn, who is uh, who founded the award-winning Tougher Minds Consultancy and has three psychology-related degrees, including a PhD. He has worked in performance psychology, resilience, and leadership science for over 20 years. Dr. Finn wrote his best-selling book, The Habit Mechanic, uh, which took him over 20 years because his life's mission is to help people to be their best in the challenging modern world. Having trained and coached over 10,000 people, Dr. Finn and his colleagues work with global businesses high-growth startups, individuals, elite athletes, coaches and teams, leading educational institutes, families and the uh, the UK government and think tanks. Assalamu alaikum, peace be upon you and welcome to The Breakfast Show, Dr. John. Good morning. 
thank you so much for coming on today. Um, we are talking about the trait of resilience, its source, purpose, and necessity. And we, as a first question to you, I wanted to ask, how can we develop higher levels of happiness and mental resilience? First of all, if we need to understand how our brain works. Insight we've got about how our brain actually works is that it's designed for threat detection. We, are, we have a survival brain, so it prioritizes paying attention to negative, unhelpful things. So that's the starting point. So it's really easy to beat ourselves up, to, up, to worry about things too much, etc. And, it, and it's increasingly easy to do that in the world that we live in because we have things like social media. We have this constant ability to compare ourselves to other people's lives. So just understanding that in itself is really helpful. What we're starting to do is to step back and think about how we're thinking. And, and I call this intelligent self-watching. The reason intelligent self-watching is so important is because another main insight we've found about our brain is that most of what we're doing most of the time is automatic, mindless behavior. So we are running on autopilot. We think that we're making clever, conscious decisions all the time, but we're not. We're just running literally on autopilot or semi-autopilot. In other words, we're running on habits. So we have all these habits that are driving what we think and do, and many of them making us think and do things that are not very helpful for being our best. So understanding that's really important. At, at a high level, if we want to be healthy, happy, resilient, the first thing we need to do is get our brain working properly. So that means good sleep, good diet, good exercise, positive social relationships. The second ingredient is we have to let our hair down, we have to have some fun, we have to enjoy ourselves, we have to engage in some levels of hedonism, and that's easier to do than ever before. But the third ingredient, which is harder to do than ever before, is to making personal progress, that we're achieving meaningful goals, that we're experiencing what we call eudaimonia. So if we want to be healthy, happy, at our best, we've got to get those three things right. Does that make sense? Yeah, of, of, of course it makes sense. Um, um, with um, uh, su such a great description you've just given there. Um, so what was, um, what was your motivation behind starting Tougher Minds? Um, and also, what are the aims of this company? So, so our mission is to make it easy as possible to help people to be their best. And the trouble with the psychology advice that we get is it's very much based on knowledge, knowing more things. We know that we should uh, be grateful, that we should do X, Y, and Z. We don't do, we don't do, what, we, we don't do what we know we should do. We do what we're in the habit of doing. So actually, if we want to help people to do better, we have to help them to build better habits. So the tougher mind is we want to equip people with the essential new skills, habit-building skills, to help them to thrive in the post-COVID world. The reason I got into psychology was I was pretty good at playing sports, and I had an experience at university where I was playing high-level rugby, and... Um, 
I essentially choked under pressure and I didn't get picked for the, the international fixture I was trialling for. I was studying sports psychology at the time and I was kind of kicking myself that I should have done better. And I got quite a serious injury around that time as well and recognised I couldn't fulfil my professional sporting ambitions. So I made it my mission to help people to, to be their best through this performance psychology lens. So that's how we started the company. And as um, a sort of, uh, just to reflect a bit on your book, The Habit Mechanic, um, how can we all become a habit mechanic? And what what is the best habit do you think is um, uh, there is to develop? It's a great question. What we've learned is that some habits are disproportionately powerful in a positive way and also disproportionately disruptive in a negative way. So we call the positive ones super habits. We call the uh, disruptive ones... Um, can you still hear me? Uh, yep. Sorry, the line is terrible. So we, we call... We call the, the positive ones super habits. We call the negative ones destructive habits. What we've learned is the most powerful thing that you can do every day is more intelligent self-watching and more intelligent planning. And a core tool that you can use to do that is called the daily tea plan. So the daily tea plan only takes two minutes every day and you're doing three simple steps. So if you're going to build any new habit, I'd suggest working on one like this in the first instance. So first of all, Step one, rate yourself on a continuum and on the question of how well have I done my best, my best and achieved my goals yesterday or if that's too far to think back, so far today. Ten would mean you were perfect. One would mean you failed. You're probably somewhere in between. Write the score down. That's going to get you thinking about yourself. It doesn't matter what the score is. You're just thinking about yourself in a more intelligent way. Step two is you create a T, which is a tiny empowering action. Just one tiny thing that's going to help you to do a little bit better today. So here are some examples. You might say, I'm only going to check the news once today. You might say, I'm going to go for a five-minute walk at lunchtime. You might say, I'm going to write a positive reflection at the end of the day. And then step three is, you say why. Why is doing that thing going to be helpful for you? You might say, well, if I only check the news once today, I'll be less distracted, I'll feel better about myself, I'll get all my work done faster, work on time, spend time with the family. If I go for a five minute walk at lunchtime, I'll feel better in the afternoon, I'll get my work done faster, I'll get to finish work on time, I'll get to switch off switch off properly, sleep better, etc. If you write a positive reflection at the end of the day, you might say it helps me to draw a line between work and home life, helps me to reframe some of the things that have been going on, helps me to activate my evening routines, sleep better, feel better tomorrow. So you rate yourself out of 10, you pick your tiny empowering action, and you say why, and you write those things down. 
and that's going to activate quite a lot of helpful behavioral science that makes it easy to start building small new helpful habits and, and it helps you to do more intelligent self-watching and more intelligent planning and that's what the habit mechanic approach is all about so the, the habit mechanic book is like a manual for life and it's packed full of habit building tools like the t-plan that makes it easier for you to be more intelligent about yourself and build tiny new helpful habits for things like better sleep, diet, exercise, stress management, confidence, performing under pressure, being more productive, being a better leader, helping your people to be at their best. So it's these tiny little habit building tools that we see as the core to being more resilient and that's the foundation for being healthier, happier, at your best more often in the modern world. Dr. John, um, we do apologise for um, the the line, the terrible line, but um, we do um, I wish to speak to you uh, again uh, at another show, at another time, in more depth and hopefully with uh, a better line. But thank you so much for coming on today with um, such insightful information, uh, as hard as it was to deliver. And um, I look forward to reading your book, uh, The Habit Mechanic. I used all my resilient skills to get through the echo. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you so much. That was uh, Dr. Jonathan, um, founded the awarding, uh, award-winning Tougher Minds Consultancy and has three psycho- uh, psychology-related degrees, including a PhD. And he has uh, written his best-selling book, The Habit Mechanic, which took him over 20 years because his life's mission is to help people to be their best in the challenging modern world. And hopefully, uh, with a better line, we do have with us on the line Dr. Carol Pemberton. Dr. Carol, I'm here. <laughs> thank you so much uh, for uh, joining. Uh, um, and just to introduce yourself, doc- uh, Dr. Um, Dr. Carroll has been uh, working with people to help them achieve more in their lives for over 30 years. She works in the public, private and not-for-profit sectors both in the UK and globally. This includes global humanitarian organisations within uh, uh, working within areas uh, of danger, as well as leaders in FTSE 100 companies. Her interest in resilience grew from seeing successful people derailed by something that had happened to them and wanting to understand why they are resilient uh, much of the time, how they change and when something significant happens to us and how they recover, they can recover and move forward. It led to a doctorate and a book, Resilience, A Practical Guide. So to get us started, um, uh, Dr. Carroll, what are some of the factors that can affect someone's resilience? I think the first thing to say is all of us are resilient. I mean, every day there are lots of little tests which ask us to call on micro-resilience. You know, things don't go right. I mean, you've just had an interview where the line wasn't working. Um, you know, the train doesn't turn up. Our plans get thrown awry. So all of us are resilient. But there are certain factors which seem to show why some people are more resilient than others. and. Probably the least important are your genes, because people used to think it was genetic, you either had it or you didn't, and and we know that now isn't a very important part of our resilience. The things which actually do seem to help, firstly, actually having a a strong family support structure. Um, Having stability, particularly in our early years, is very important. But beyond that, 
it's having a family where you're allowed to take some risks, that they're not overprotective, that you you learn how to deal with things that go wrong. And I think that's particularly important at the moment because I think often parenting is very protective of our children. But actually our resilience grows by having to deal with things and not having somebody to sort it out for us. So our family is an important part of our resilience and also what they model to us. You know, what you see, how have your parents or your caregivers, how have they dealt with the difficulties? Because you will model that, you will take that on board for yourself. But probably the most important factor is what you learn from the things that happen to you. We actually need some challenges in our lives. If we had perfect lives, then actually we wouldn't be as resilient um, as, as we need to be. We need to have some things which we have to learn how to find a way through. You know, the ending of a relationship, the losing of a job, uh, even the, the death of somebody. Um, you know, the big disappointments and smaller disappointments. We actually need some of those because what that does for us is, firstly, we have to adapt. We have to say, well, this isn't now available to me, so what else can I do? And I think we also have to look at from this. It's like, you know, really, they don't win it. But when they lose, they don't say, there's no point, I'll never win. It's always going to be me. They acknowledge the appointment, then they say, what can I learn from this so I'm going to be this time? Resilience. It's about the... How do we take how do we seems uh, dr carroll has uh, uh the line has been dropped as we were speaking as uh, she was speaking about some of the factors that can affect someone's resilience we will see if um we can get her back um though in the meantime okay. uh, dr carroll can you hear me i can hear you oh it seemed you just dropped out for a bit um Okay, I'm sorry. Um, it's it's not your it's not your fault. Um, to move on to uh, the third question, um, if that's all right with you. Yeah, so, of course. Uh, you know what happens if a person lacks resilience? How can it affect their mental and physical health? Well, I hope you heard me say that we all have resilience. Yeah. But there are times in which we lose it. And I think when we do, we probably get to recognize the signs for ourselves. I mean, a very common one is we start withdrawing from people. Um, you know, we don't want to go out and see our friends or because we somehow think, oh, I'm, I'm not much fun or they'll make me, it'll make me feel worse when I see how they're dealing with their lives. Their lives seem okay. So often there's a withdrawal. Um, we may find that our eating habits change. You know, we may find that we start comfort eating or, or perhaps even not eating. Uh, I think one of the most important is that we lose confidence in ourselves. And that comes up again and again. People saying, you know, I, I, in a way I don't trust myself, so I'm, I'm not going to apply for that job. I'm, I'm not going to say yes to that invitation. Um, I can't make a decision. Those are all signs that, that we lose confidence, and that very often happens. And I think another thing is that 
uh, we notice our moods change. I mean, people will tell me, I, you know, I'm much more impatient at home. I get really irritated. I can hold it together at work, but once I go home, you know, all, all the filters are off. And so people can either become angrier, more irritable, more impatient, um, and sometimes more tearful. And all of those things are indicators that in some way our resilience has been dented. Approaching the end of the show anyway, as it is. But, um, you know, hopefully we can get you on another time and do this properly. Um, yeah. But thank you so much uh, for coming on as it is. Um, and we definitely hope to see you again. Right. Well, thank you. That was uh, Dr. Carol Pemberton, who has been working with people to help them achieve more in their lives for over 30 years. We are fast approaching the end of the show. Um, Assalamu alaikum, peace be upon you.